0: I have a book in my hand called End Time, The Doomsday Catalog. It has a lot of interesting things in it regarding both both aspects of eschatology, personal as well as corporate eschatology, and there's an article in here that's, that's pretty interesting, The Long Habit of Living, by Lewis Thomas, and he quotes to start off a man by the name of Thomas Brown, the long habit of living indisposeth us to dying. The fact that we live, and the longer we do it, the less inclined we are to die, it seems like up to a certain point. Now I remember pastoring a church. We had a man in our church that was 96, and I went to visit him one day, and I was specifically there to ask him to say a word to the fathers on Father's Day. We were having a father-daughter breakfast on Father's Day morning. And I asked him to come and say a word to the fathers with his long years. He had been a successful father and businessman and Bible teacher. He had taught junior boys till he was past 80, so you know about what kind of a man he was. Uh, I don't feel like I can handle him now. But in doing that kind of activity for the Lord, he had achieved a great deal of wisdom, and so I wanted him to share a little bit of that. But the day I went to see him, he was doing some long thinking, about his life and so forth and he was saying he was nearly blind could see very very uh, poorly he had buried two wives one had died of an accident the other died uh, just about five years before and i had been involved in the funeral and so he was he was very melancholy the day I went to see him and he said you know when you get to be my age uh, most of your friends are gone he said both of my wives have died Uh, one of my children has died And there's really not much left in life to look forward to. And in this article, The Long Habit of Living, he goes on to talk about that very factor. And the factor is that uh, if we're going to live to be a ripe old age, we have to think of something maybe a little better to do with our time than sit on the porch and clean our fingernails. And so he he puts it this way. He said, we will be lucky if we can postpone the search for new technologies for a while until we have discovered some satisfactory things to do with the extra time. If you can be busy and active and productive up until the moment of expiration, that's one thing. But on the other hand, if you can't be that busy and productive and so forth, living to be a ripe old age maybe is not all it's cracked up to be. Yet I realize, in talking to students at your age, uh, most of you—Jim is a little older there—but most of you have very small appreciation for the fact that someday you're going to die. At least I realized when I was your age, I thought I'm going to live to be at least 140, or if not, it'll seem that way anyway. Well, we all have to come to grips with the fact that we are going to die, and. Sometimes we come to it sooner than we expect. column in the paper a few years ago uh, entitled, The Weary Wait for a Rest in Peace. (laughs) And this dear person was told that they have only a year to live, age 26. Well, at age 26, you don't want to hear that kind of news. You want to go to the doctor and have the doctor say, you're the picture of health, you're beautiful, you're handsome, go in peace. But this lady went and was told, you have a year to live at the most two years she lived four years went back to the doctor and the doctor said well you've outlived uh, the people who usually have this disease you got one more year to live came back a year later well you've got one more year to live we're gonna re-examine your records and at this point four doctors who agreed that she had this terminal illness now decided uh, two of them decided that well she didn't have it at all because she'd lived so long now it's two to two and well so it goes A recent uh, series on the radio was about this very thing. A woman of just in her early 40s had been diagnosed as having terminal cancer. And she responds by remembering how 10 years before or so, a lady in her office had been given the same uh, diagnosis. And she said, I was embarrassed to be around her. I didn't know what to say to her. She said people never talked to her openly about this, but they would whisper in the corners about poor Sarah Sue and the fact that she's going to die soon and so forth. And we simply don't know how to grapple and cope with the fact that we shall surely die. The scripture, as a matter of fact, says that very thing. Genesis 2.17 puts it very powerful in the Hebrew text, using the infinitive with the imperfect uh, form of the Kal verb, dying, you shall die, moth move, You shall surely die. You can count on that. Uh, Adam didn't, and neither did Eve, and the result was they died. And you can read that litany of death very early in the book of Genesis, that they lived, and they begat children and they died, and he died, and he died, and on it goes with the litany of death, and it seems like from very early on in Scripture down to the end, we find the litany of death, and then we read gloriously, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and the eschatology then concludes in Scripture with the eternal state when death shall be no more. Hebrews 9.27 is a powerful text. The story is told of an evangelist who was visiting a church and preached on this text. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And as he finished his sermon, powerfully applied that everybody will die and everybody will be judged and we shall all give account, a young man met him at the door and said, I didn't agree with that sermon. He said, well... That's not what really matters. What really matters is it's appointed and a man wants to die, and after this the judgment. And the young man said, "Well, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. That's what I can't understand. And I don't agree with it. He said The man said, "Well, that's okay, but remember, it's appointed and a man wants to die, and after this the judgment. The young man said, "You are really stubborn. That's exactly my point." Young man the preacher said, that's okay. Just remember, it's appointed in a man once to die, and after this the judgment. And the fellow said, I just can't even talk to you, and turned around to leave, and as he walked down the steps of the church, the preacher called after him, remember, it's appointed in a man once to die, and after this the judgment. At midnight, the phone rang. The preacher, preacher is obviously in the throes of deep sleep. The phone rings. He picks up the phone who was on the phone but this young man. He said, preacher, I cannot sleep. I cannot get that out of my mind. And the preacher said, what is that? He said, it's appointed in a man wants to die and after this, the judgment. He said, exactly right. And he had, this is supposed to be true. And he had the privilege of leading him to the Lord over the telephone because of the continual application and pressing upon this text. Now, I dare say, if you sit down next to somebody on the bus and begin to witness to them, this is not one of the things they want to hear. Perhaps this is the reason that the Four Spiritual Laws begins with God has a wonderful plan for your life, not it's appointed in a man wants to die and after this the judgment. It's, it's hardly a good opener. Some years back when I was on a Bible conference ministry in the Midwest, I was riding the train from Chicago down to East Moline where I was going to hold a meeting, and uh, I got on next to a, a fellow, and he had helped me. I had, you know, when I go, I've got to carry my trombone, right? and my briefcase with all my good notes and the papers that I haven't graded yet for school, and my suitcase and my camera bag. I had all of this stuff, so he helped me struggle on with this. And uh, I sat next to him, we began to talk about different things, and I began to witness to him. And everything was fine as long as the discussion was philosophical and on a level of peace with God and so forth. When we got down to the point of death and judgment, He said this, you better go on and sit over there in that other seat. I I said, do you think it's an accident or the providence of God that I can be here and talk to you today about the nature of death and judgment? He didn't want to hear any more. He wanted me off his seat. Okay, that's the way it is. Handed him a track and went over and sat in my own chair for a while. Uh, People don't want to deal with death. A study of 400 terminally terminally ill patients in Chicago was taken not too many years ago, and uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and others have indicated these kinds of approaches that come or attitudes that come as a result of dealing with death. The person who is told that he's terminal usually goes through five stages. Now, not everybody goes through all five, but almost everybody does. The first stage is shock and denial. No, not me. You got the records mixed up. We're always hearing about these wacko medical clinics and you sent my blood to the wrong place or something like that. Not me. Look how healthy I am. I can still do three push-ups when I get up in the morning. Whatever. Shock and denial. Or the second stage of anger. Why should I die? My neighbor is a stinker. He's been in jail for three years. Why not him? Why me? Anger. And then... The third stage, as the terminally ill begins to come to grips and terms with the diagnosis, God, if you'll just give me a longer life, I'll be better than I've ever been before. I'll be so good you won't believe it. Just give me another chance. GIs and foxholes and combat, uh, people all over the world have ended up with this kind of thing, facing death and have made bargains of some kind or another. You remember, Isaac made a bargain. It wasn't about death. It was about prosperity. Maybe they're pretty close to the same thing. I don't know. Uh, God, if you'll just give me a million bucks, I'll give you 10%. That's not too bad a deal. Uh, And uh, so somehow, God, if you just treat me right, let me live a little longer, then I'll be a good fellow. And then fourth, the depression depression it's come there's nothing i can do i went to visit my father on his deathbed and he was at this stage whereby he was in a state of depression and could see no way out and he was 62 at the time looking forward to retirement he and my mother were going to move up in this area and We were going to go fishing and hunting together and all that good stuff. And he was going to be close to the grandchildren, so forth and so on. And as I went to visit him, all of these things came up. My response to him was, none of us have any guarantee of tomorrow. I said, Dad, this is the first time I've ever seen you in the hospital. This is the first time I've ever seen you sick in bed. You've had a healthy, strong, happy life. And you've enjoyed the work that you've done. Now, I would just like to say that when I leave this hospital, I'm young and healthy. I don't know anything wrong with me, but I can step out the door and some drunken fool can run his car up on the sidewalk and kill me just as quick as anything. And then I reminded him of what the Lord Jesus said today has its own problems that we need to live for today and tomorrow is another story. And so I said, it's just our task to submit to God's will for today. And I think it helped him some, but I'll tell you, that's a sad, sad experience to have. And yet I know that in all of this, it's a promotion for him to go to glory. You remember the Apostle Paul said, I have an earnest desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is very far better. (laughs) It's a whole lot better than what I've got going here. Yet, to stay here is more needful for you. Now, you say, well, of course, Paul was in jail. He wouldn't have said that two weeks before he got to jail. Well, I don't know about that. But this resignation aspect is the fourth step. I guess there's nothing I can do, the depression aspect. And finally, then, the acceptance, where a person comes to term, accepts it, and says, it's inevitable, so I'd better prepare for it. When I was pastoring, uh, I had two men in the church that died within a short period of each other. Both were terminally ill for a good period of time. One man with cancer had been operated on about three years before, got a recurrence, and uh, at the time, they were, he and his wife were fairly new in our church. He was in his late 60s, and uh, when he got the recurrence, why... The missus called me, and she said, we've just been to the doctor, and the doctor said there's nothing more they can do. There's no more chemotherapy. They're not going to operate again. So uh, that's just the way it is. So I went to visit him, talked with them, and they were both in pretty good spirits. They were already at this acceptance stage. It's inevitable. Praise the Lord, and uh, that's all there is to it. And uh, this other man was older, 77. It surprised me to know that he was that old because he was very young looking and acting and feeling. He was still active every day as a real estate man and so forth. His wife was considerably younger. She was in her middle forties. And she knew absolutely nothing about his income, his insurance, zero. He was terminally ill for a period of about three weeks before he finally went. He was conscious for at least two weeks of that three weeks. I went to visit him several times in the hospital and talked with him and prayed with him, and uh, there was no willingness to come to grips with death. And after he died on Monday, the funeral was on Tuesday. On Monday, I spent half a day driving the widow and the only child of the family around to the graveyards in Portland looking for a place where they thought they wanted to bury their departed loved one. That was a quite an experience, one that I don't care to have to go through too many times. And she was just in a complete flurry. She knew nothing about anything, none of his affairs. He'd made no provision, there was no will, no nothing. At seventy seven years of age. Well The other man called me about a week and a half later and asked me who I preferred as a mortician in the Beaverton area. I said, well, I've worked with several of them. They're they're all pretty good. Well, how about this fellow? I said, yeah, he's fine. Okay. This guy, he prepared everything, including hiring the mortician, planning the funeral service, and uh, he wrote out a bunch of things for his wife. He took care of all the finances and so forth, and he had a long list for her on his desk, And everything was down. The car, look in the glove box. In the glove box, open the glove box, who the mechanic is, when it was tuned up last time, what weight of oil I used, when it was last changed. (laughs) Everything. And for months after he died, she was going to this cubby hole and that spot and so forth and pulling out slips of paper, every one of which were a testimony of his love and care for his wife that he left behind. Now, planning doesn't make you die any sooner. But somehow it seems to have a great soothing and healing effect on the widow. This widow, within a very short period of time, was over the horrendous catastrophic grief that comes through that. And I'm convinced of this, folks. I think the most difficult transition of life is losing a spouse. Now, I haven't seen uh, everything. I've seen a lot of things go on. But I do believe that that hurts worse and for a longer period of time than any other experience. And when you men go into the pastorate, I think you're going to find that very thing is the most difficult aspect of counseling, caring ministry is to handle those who have lost their spouses. Well, the other widow whose husband died totally unprepared and so forth, it was several years before she even got close to coming to grips with this. Her loneliness, her grief, she was just really a basket case for a number of months. Now, I realize there are individual variants, but nevertheless, preparing is very, very helpful. Between 60, pardon me, between 80 and 90% of the terminally ill patients want to know if they are dying. Shoot straight with me, doctor. Am I or aren't I? And yet... Doctors in about the same percentage, 80 to 90 percent, don't think they ought to tell them. And yet the doctors themselves want to be told, if it were they. Interesting. A friend of mine told me one time he was sitting with a lady whose husband was being operated on, and the doctor came rushing in. He said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith, your husband just died and turned around and left. And he said, there I sat. What are your next words going to be? Well, 50% of the patients who are terminal in this study of 400 did not want their next of kin to be told. And yet, if my wife is dying, I sure would like to know. And yet, the one who is ailing doesn't want to cause any pain. That's the impulse. Don't want to cause any difficulty. Many people who go in to visit hide their concern behind jokes and jocular sayings and, and just refuse to come to grips with it. Uh, I remember reading one terminal patient's reactions, and he said only one person that came to see him could he really... Now, this was all secular, no reference to God or anything. Only one secular person could he really understand uh, and and appreciate. And this person came in, (coughs) sat down and looked at him for a minute or two, a friend of his from work, and then he said, better you than me. He said, that I could understand. But the people who came in with their little statements, he couldn't understand. (laughs) Uh, A pastor's wife of a church that I know, she was a great hospital visitor. She would go with her husband to the hospital and sit there and regale the person, the patient, with stories about how many people she knew that had the same thing they had that died a terrible, gasping, painful death. I mean, there are some things to do and some things not to do, and that's one of them, right? A British study indicates that people fear dying in pain more than they fear death itself, and I think that's in general true. Uh, in, this, in this book here, by uh, an article is, is in here about uh, the pain of dying. That is, when you're in the process of dying, a memoir by David Livingston about his own experience of near death in Africa, he was crushed in the chest by an attack of a lion. Now, when you get between the lion's jaws, you don't usually come out very well. However, in the last instant, a lucky shot from a skillful friend with a rifle killed the lion and saved Livingston's life. Later, he remembered the episode in clear detail. He was amazed by the extraordinary sense of peace, calm, and total painlessness associated with being killed. And he constructed a theory from this that all creatures are provided with a protective physiologic mechanism switched on at the verge of death, carrying them through in the haze of tranquility. Could very well be. The book Life After Life by Moody. I've got another book at home that was earlier written more from a Christian perspective, the death tales of a number of different people. Seems almost always to speak of that very thing. There is a certain peacefulness and equanimity at this point of death. The dying process, however, is something else. <clears throat> well, specifically, I've got six things that may be of some practical help in counseling people who are terminal and helping people to get through the process. First of all, your task as a minister of the gospel is to talk to the doctor and ask for the straight scoop. And sometimes it's difficult to get it out of them. When my doctor, when my uh, father was terminally ill, I immediately asked to speak to the doctor, and he kindly gave me a few minutes of his time, but he would not specifically say that my father was terminally ill with cancer. Now, he knew it as well as anybody else, I suspect. He's the one that had opened him up. And I said, well, uh, can't, you, can't you operate again? Now, here's how he told me my father was terminal. I said, if you didn't get it all, can't you, can't you operate again? He said, to operate again on a man in his condition would be merely cruel. So that, to me, said, this man is terminally ill, there's no point in any further medical care rather than just saying you know your father's going to die and there's nothing I can do I'm sorry he said it that way so you have to be somewhat alert and I realize that uh, I'm a little dull in that regard especially when it's your father and you didn't do need to talk to the doctor ask for the truth and then find out if he has informed the patient or the family What has he said? And maybe you won't be able to get it from the doctor. Maybe you'll have to talk to the family, talk to the patient. And believe me, very difficult, and you need to be extremely tactful at this point. Secondly, don't double-talk the patient. Be kind, be matter-of-fact. If they ask if they're going to get to die, and you know they are, tell them. Now, you heard the story about the fellow who was on a trip, and he called up, and he asked his neighbor, he said, well, how's everybody at home? He said, everybody's fine, but your dog died. And he said, my dog died? Good night, that's terrible. You know how I love my dog, my favorite hunting dog. He'd do everything for me. And he said, furthermore, why couldn't you be a little more tactful when you told me? The guy said, what do you mean tactful? The dog is dead and that's it. He said, well, I know, but at least you could break the news to me a little easier. And he said, what do you mean easier? He said, well, you could tell me he's sick. And I say, what do you mean sick? And well, I took him to the vet yesterday and the vet said he wasn't very good. And I say, what do you mean not very good? And well, he died today and I mean that would help me get through it. The guy said, well, okay, I understand. I'll try to be more tactful in the future. He said, how's mom? He said, well, Mom isn't feeling too good. (laughs) You do need to have tact and be careful what you say, but don't, don't double talk. Hiding the truth is not kind and you need to be careful to find out really how much the patient understands about himself. I remember a young lady had a hysterectomy in a church where i was an interim pastor and one of the dear deacons of the church was visiting her and that's one of the first things he wanted to know from her did she know that she was going home with jesus and she smiled and said yes she had a young children youngest child was a six-year-old girl but that's so important to find out so that they can deal with that thirdly Inform the, inform the family tactfully. I, I don't think it's a help to keep them in the, in the dark. I think they, they should be told. Now, you may feel differently, and that's up to you. Every man's got to skin his own skunks, as Abraham Lincoln said. And, uh, <laughs> but I really believe the family deserves to know and needs to know. Fourth, read the scripture and pray with people. This is so important. People grieve. In Genesis twenty-three, two, there is grief expressed at death. And I think that reading the scripture and praying, especially, you know, ones of these kind, aren't necessarily so comforting in the direct sense as they are in the indirect sense. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Abba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It is not wrong to mourn. It is not wrong to weep. And in John 11:31, 31, Jesus wept over his friend. And yet here is Jesus who knows what he's going to do, the God of heaven. He's going to say, Lazarus, come forth. And yet he wept. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, I'm telling you this so that you don't grieve as others who have no hope. He didn't say that you don't grieve, period, but that you don't grieve in the same way as the others who have no hope grieve. Your grieving is of those who have hope and the grief of loss for us as one dies and leaves us is one thing, the grief of of loss for them that they've gone to hell or that they are no more of the unbeliever is something else entirely. Read the scripture and pray with both the patient and the family. They expect this and there is nothing unique that you can do aside from this. They expect you as the person of God, as the man or woman of God in their life to do this. And if you don't do this, believe me, uh, you've left a real gap in your ministry with them. One seasoned pastor was telling me that he went to call on a home just to pick up some material for DVBS or some procedural thing like that. And <clears throat> he asked for the material and chatted briefly with a lady and, you know, how's Bill? And well... Uh, Bill is home today, he's he's not feeling too well, he's in the bedroom, you want to see him? Oh yeah, I'll go back and talk with him. So he went back and talked with Bill for a minute, he said he looked all right, didn't hack or cough or look like he had a fever or anything, he just talked with him for a minute and left. And about two months later, prayer meeting, one of the deacons said, we'd like to meet with you for a minute after the service. So fine, after the service, why well, I met, and here this Bill is sitting there, and he'd been in the hospital with a nervous breakdown, and uh, he is... Uh, they said now Bill has something that he'd like to share and then he began to share and as he started to share this bill did he began to weep and he just broke down and blubbered the pastor came to see me and he wouldn't even pray with me you know well here's the pastor He said Bill I didn't even know you were sick I didn't know you had a problem like that and it caused a real a real upset in the pastor's ministry and people expect that of you and especially at such a time as this even if the family is not a family of the church one pastor i know was called by a family a half a block literally away from the church building fourteen-year-old boy committed suicide they was you know they didn't know any preachers there's a church on the corner they never came to church totally secular typical Oregonian family you see and so they asked this pastor He didn't even call in the home. The first time they ever saw that preacher was at the funeral. Well, now, even though they were not members of the church, it seems to me that a minister of the gospel owes a ministry to people who have a death in their family, even if you're not called for the funeral. If there are people in the neighborhood, try being a good neighbor. Try being a a human being in, in, in humanity, just stopping by and sharing what you can share. And this is your unique ministry, the hope beyond the grave and the ministry of the gospel to those who are suffering. And believe me, people's hearts are tender at a moment, such as this, when they are grieving, and uh, we face the mystery of death together, and the gospel has great power at such times as this. Fifth, some teaching from Scripture as you carry on your ministry some teaching from Scripture from time to time about death and dying and wills and preparation. After I went through that experience at the church with those two men, one who was so well prepared and the other who was so utterly unprepared, I spoke on it at a prayer meeting one Wednesday night, and I said, I don't want to ever go through that experience again. And I hope every man in this congregation, and every woman for that matter, will care enough about your loved ones to prepare like this one man did prepare get ready for it and everyone here should be ready for it you need to have a will like the old saying is if you don't if you don't have a will the state has one for you what about your young children who's going to care for your children supposing you and your wife going out for dinner and you're both suddenly killed you think your parents are going to get them Oh no. your parents live in california you got three little children at home your parents are going to get them? No. They'll put them in some home here in town. Who knows what kind of upbringing they'll get. Got godly parents, godly friends, you want to take care of your children? You get a will and you put that in there. Two two factors, care of the estate and care of the heirs. And that needs to be de- designated because if you don't do it, the state will put them into who knows what kind of a home, totally secular or whatever. They may love to go to Sunday school and so forth at this point and I'm sure they do. But if they're put into a secular home where Sunday school is the last thing on the agenda, they may never see the inside of it again without a lot of hassles with the state and so forth. And your parents may never have opportunity to minister to those children. See, a lot of terrible things can happen. You need to, need to be aware of that. So teach about death and dying and mourning and so forth. And a Sunday school discussion or prayer meeting discussion will often let you know the level of thinking in the congregation. Where are they? What are they thinking about with respect to death and dying? Are they dealing with it at all? I had a man in my congregation dying of cancer. He was sick in bed. Uh, Within two weeks, he was dead, and I went to to visit him, and I said, to kind of try to open up this whole discussion of the seriousness of what he was facing, I, I asked him, I said, what is the Lord teaching you through all of this? And he made some jocular response that showed he was not even willing to come to grips with it. And so, uh, when I prayed for him, I prayed that the Lord would really speak to him during this time, enable him to come to grips with everything seriously that he was facing and so forth. But I was never able to really get down to cases with him about death and dying. Here, he, he knew he had cancer. had it for several years. He knew he was dying. He didn't want to talk about it. So you need to do some teaching on it and hopefully you can help your congregation get to a place where they will be more open and sixthly, come to grips with your own mortality you shall surely die. your family, your friends, people die and you need to you need to handle that and realize that... Uh, It's not a tragedy. It's not the end of everything good. It's a promotion of glory. But nevertheless, it is the end of this. I have a friend in heaven, David Goodwin. David Goodwin was the pastor at East Moline, Illinois, for something over 30 years. He died of cancer. I was with his wife the day that they found out that he'd had a reoccurrence of cancer. The first meeting I held in his church was about six months after he'd had uh, a serious cancer operation and we chatted about it and dave was very open and i mean i was new he didn't know me from anyone but we you know it's one of those things where you just hit it off become friends right away and and he shared very openly about that (coughs) excuse me about that and it was about five years later i was holding another meeting in his church and he had to go up to the hospital for tests overnight And uh, I stopped by to pick up his wife and drive her up to the hospital. She wanted me to be with her when she heard the news. And the news was that reoccurrence, there was a blockage in the liver. And it was a year later that he was gone. I spoke later on in his church on my way back to Indiana one summer. And he had lost weight. And uh, this was written up. by Les Flynn. Les Flynn is an author of, I don't know, 15 or 20 books, I guess. Les Flynn also was a, a good friend, and he tells a few things about David Goodwin. Last winter, he said he heard, excuse me, I want to read a little before that. Years ago in Canada, Dave Goodwin was my Sunday school teacher. During the summer, he would take us camping for a week and would supply all the food and even do the cooking. We boys were supposed to help with the dishes, but when that time came, most of us, typical teenagers, were nowhere to be found. He would only charge a couple of dollars for the entire week, supplying not only the food but renting the tent as well. It was during the Depression, and many of the boys could not afford to pay even a couple of dollars but were still welcome. Somehow, he would underwrite the cost. He became pastor of a small Canadian church and started me teaching my first Sunday school class. Later, when he became pastor in East Moline, Illinois, I became a member of his church and was ordained to the ministry in his church with him preaching the ordination sermon. David Goodwin. Well, he led Les to the Lord. He discipled him in the Lord. He preached his ordination sermon. Les became an effective pastor and uh, later on he was asked to preach the funeral. He heard, he said that Dave was ill, and when spring went by, we had not heard any further word. My wife and I decided to phone his home in East Moline. It was the first Saturday night in June, and his daughter, a young woman in her 20s, had moved from her job in New York City to be with her father during this time. She quietly informed us that her father had slowly declined. It was during this time that I passed through East Moline and spoke for him at prayer meeting night. His weight had gone from 180 pounds down to 90, He was confined to his bed most of the time, getting out of bed only Sundays just to deliver the sermon in his church. They would wheel him into the auditorium just before the sermon, and with his suit hanging on him with a little table and mic, would faintly but bravely preach the word from his wheelchair. In fact, his daughter told us on the phone that that very afternoon he had performed two weddings from the wheelchair. She said, my father knows he's going to die. He knows he has cancer. He wants you to come out and preach his funeral sermon. Will you be able to do it? And so then she put her father on the phone and said he talked for a few minutes with him. And then in a soft voice, he told me he knew he was going to leave this world soon. Then he said, I want you to take the service and preached the sermon. During those final weeks he had preached, he had taken as his text from 2 Peter 1, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of the things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it fitting as long as, as I am in this body to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my departure to have these things always in remembrance, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, There was a living testimony and his 33 years of ministry, he was able to remind them a number of things that he had preached there in that assembly. And it was, it was quite an opportunity. The whole church was packed when, he, uh, when they had his funeral in an overflow room, and it was, it was a notable experience in many ways. He woke up the morning of his death, and he said, This is the day. I'm going home today. Then he asked his wife and daughter to come and read his favorite Psalms, the 103rd and the 91st. And then he quoted himself, the 23rd Psalm, and in a few hours he was gone home to glory. Uh, I'm sure that with Dave, as with many, many, perhaps most people, the process of getting from health to death is the worst part, and especially with cancer. Dr. Talbot told of his wife, uh, who died of cancer, and I remember him coming to Seminary Chapel when I was a student and saying, this is one thing I don't think I shall ever understand, the the enormity of her suffering. He would go to visit her in the hospital, and she would ask him to lean over and hold her, so he would lean over and hug her, and she would bury her face in his chest and just shriek. The pain was so terrible, but she felt like in the hospital she couldn't express her suffering from that. And when he got there, then she would she would unload and and try to ease off some of that terrible pressure. And, of course, the problem of evil, why do the righteous suffer, and so forth. Uh, All of these things are bouncing around in our minds as we consider it. Uh, What the Bible Teaches About Death is a very helpful book. You might want to have this in your library. Peter Cotterell, published by Tyndale. What the Bible Teaches About Death will give you some help for yourself as well as a good book to have on your shelf to loan to people who are either facing death themselves or perhaps in their own family, what the Bible teaches about death. Now on page 236 in Dr. Cook's notes, he speaks about physical death and has several things to say. Bertrand Russell was raised in a Christian home, at least professing Christian home, Bertrand Russell was a great mathematician, philosopher, and atheist. His comment about death is this, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. You know what they say about an atheist at a funeral, he's a man who's all dressed up and no place to go. (laughs) And if you watched any of what went on in Soviet Russia recently... Uh, Anything that is left is strictly on the physical influence or whatever level. Nothing of eternity whatsoever. And so Bertrand Russell, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. But a believer, of course, has a far, far better hope than this. Well, the term death in Scripture is used in several ways to refer to physical death, and he notes that in 2 Peter 1.15, the use of exodus is used. Exodus is not only, that's not a term that Peter coined or applied to the use of death alone. Epictetus, a classical Greek writer, Epictetus also used exodus or exit or departure of death. The term death is also used of spiritual death in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1, and 5, you can scratch out 12 because it doesn't, it, it doesn't use the term death, but it does refer to death. But 2, 1, and 5 do refer to death, the condition of the unbeliever whereby he is separated from God. And obviously it's possible to be physically alive and spiritually dead. Also possible to be spiritually alive and physically dead. <laughs> okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow, same time.